So today's scripture reading will be in James chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 13 through 16, if you'd love to follow along. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 5 and the passage that Greg just read for us. We're, believe it or not, beginning to wrap up our series in the book of James we have today and then I believe three more weeks. So we'll cover uh, the rest of the text but with today's message next week and one more week. And then after that, we'll do a kind of a wrap-up message where we'll summarize the whole book uh, right at the end. If you're wondering where are we going next, and this is about the time that we get these questions. I've been getting emails. So what are we studying next after this? Well, uh, here's where we're gonna go. After we finish James, we're gonna do a two-week mini-series on the Bible, on Scripture. And we're gonna center it around our first core value, which is word-centered. We're gonna answer questions like, why are we a word-centered church? Why is Bible literally in the name of our church, Fellowship Bible Church? Can we really trust the Bible? How does it speak to us today? I mean, these are some of the questions that we need to be well-grounded in if we're gonna be the kind of church that would say, we are word-centered. So we'll spend two weeks on that. Then we're gonna move into a study on the book of Psalms, and we'll go all throughout the summer in Psalms. Now, now, you know, you know, there are 150 Psalms, so there's no way we're going to cover all 150, but we're going to give it our best shot to, to cover some of the ones as we kind of go through that book. And it'll be a great opportunity for us throughout the summer to dig into those, a Psalm at a time throughout the summer. So that's where we're going. If you're interested and curious, if you want to read ahead, I'd encourage you to start spending some time in the book of Psalms. What a great way to engage God this summer by studying those texts. Well, the final eight verses of the book of James is where we find ourselves over the next three weeks. And we're going to cover not all those today, just the passage that Greg read to us a few minutes ago. And what's interesting about the final eight verses, commentators say, you know, there's no real unity to this. He just jumps around on three or four different topics, almost like he knew he was getting to the end of what he wanted to say. He's like, what, what did I leave out? What did I leave out? Let me say this and that and the other. I respectfully disagree with that interpretation because I actually think that there is a pretty significant unity in this final section of the book of James, and I want to introduce that to you today, and then you'll see how it traces out in today's text next week where Lloyd will be teaching, and then the following week when I'll be back, because I think all these eight verses are tied together by a significant theme, and, and here, here it is. It's the intersection of God's work and our work. In other words, how is it that, that prayers we pray, things we do, is actually God that is doing the work through us? How is it that we become instruments or vessels of the work of God on earth? It's a fascinating topic. If you think about it, we might call that intersection between God's work and our work, we might call that active faith. Here's the definition that we've written around active faith, and we introduced this to you earlier in the fall when we went through our vision. And if you can think about that disconnected heart, and then when the heart comes together around the cross, you know, as people find wholehearted life in Jesus, what you're going to find is that heart, it begins to be transformed. And so the ultimate goal of the transformation of the Spirit in us through God's Word is a renewed mind 
healthy relationships, a satisfied soul, and an active faith. And so throughout the book of James, we've been talking about active faith. It's what happens when you begin to find wholehearted life in Jesus such that you start living it out. In other words, the work of God and the work of Rob or the work of you, fill in the blank with your name, begins to become aligned. Here's our definition of active faith. As God speaks to us, we hear and act, living out what we believe through immediate and tangible steps of obedience. Immediate and tangible steps of obedience. What's really interesting about active faith is that it's ultimately not us who's doing the acting. It is God, by his spirit, acting through us. It's the idea that God delights to do what he wants to do on earth. He delights to do it through us, through human agents. Active faith, think about it this way, is the mystery that God uses the prayers that we pray and the things that we do to accomplish his will on earth. So here is a rather amazing statement. If you really think about this, I think some of the stuff we just take for granted and it's actually amazing. Here's the statement. Much of what God does in the world, he does through people. I think that's remarkable. Not everything. I mean, he still acts supernaturally. He still acts through all kinds of ways. He's certainly capable of acting without any human agency. Isn't that true? But much of what God does in the world, he does through people. Think about it this way. He chose to write his word through human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. He communicates his word today primarily through people who preach and share and teach and evangelize. He works his compassion and justice for those in need through men and women who serve and love and give in his name. He leads his people by gifting some with specific leadership gifts and callings. To a certain degree, this mysterious dynamic, you think about God's work and our work, is in play in nearly every area of life. Let me just give you some examples that we take for granted. If I were to ask you, has God provided for your physical needs of you know, food and clothing and shelter? You know, everybody in this room would say, you know, yes, like God is the one who's provided for that. Well, how has he done it? Through human beings who plant and harvest crops and manufacture clothing and build houses. And and even in a sense, through your own human agency, he has given you the skills and the education and the background to be able to work, get a job, earn money, which you exchange for food and shelter and clothing. How about our physical bodies, like our little literal wellness? Does God sustain us? Does he care for our physical bodies? Yes, sometimes supernaturally, but oftentimes through gifted and skilled nurses and physicians and medicine. Remember, every good gift, James chapter one, comes ultimately down from the Father. So how do we have the medicine that we have today? God put the raw ingredients on the earth and he gave the brain power to human beings to figure out how to cultivate those raw ingredients to create Medicine, of course, all these things can be abused, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it all comes down from God. God is accomplishing his work through human agents. It, it puts a good deal of responsibility on us to steward the earth. Doesn't that sound like Genesis 1 and 2, by the way? Isn't that interesting? And of course, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. For those of us that are Christ followers, we are not our own. 
We are living, Paul would say, it's the life of Christ being lived through us by the Holy Spirit as we steward the gifts and callings and people that he brings us in contact with. Now, I'm spending a little extra time on this and and I don't have a whole lot of time this morning because this theme is so fascinating to me and it's pervasive throughout the whole book of James, but particularly the end of the book, these final eight verses. And it's the theme that we're gonna see play out in the next three messages. So now let's jump in with all that in mind. Let's jump into verse 13 and we'll see that it starts with the simplest form of God's work in our work intersecting, which is prayer. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Prayer at its most basic level is the intersecting point between God's will and my will. This is what Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done. This is what Jesus modeled for us through his prayers, even in his prayer of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will. Prayer is the intersecting point between God's will and our will. Now, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that God commands us to pray. I don't know if you've ever dug into this mentally. It kind of, it it puts my head in a weird place because I I can't solve the riddle. And and I don't think any of us can ultimately give an answer to this. But if God is ultimately all-knowing and God is ultimately in control, if he's sovereign, which is what we actually believe the Bible teaches, why should we pray? Doesn't God already know what he's gonna do? And and like, doesn't he know exactly what we're going to pray, what we're gonna think, what we're gonna say before we even pray it? Is our prayer actually going to change anything? Like, why bother? Why pray? There are several answers to this throughout the scripture, but there's one that I think is the simplest, but also the most mind-bending. And and you find this answer all throughout the scripture. There's some mystery here, but, but here it is. We pray because God desires to act, and our prayers somehow activate his response. I believe that's true. I think that's what scripture teaches. It's a mystery, but prayer works because God answers prayer. There's a sense that he invites and commands us to pray because he desires to act and the prayer unlocks or unleashes or it's his response to the prayer where his activity begins to show up on earth. Now you could say, well, couldn't he do that? And wouldn't he do that even if we didn't pray? Absolutely he could, but prayer seems to be one of the primary means by which he activates his work on the world. I can't explain all of this. I'm just teaching you what I think scripture teaches over and over. Now, interesting, in this verse that we just read here, verse 13, James is using two opposite poles of life, suffering on the one hand and, and kind of happiness or gladness on the other hand, to remind us that God wants us to pray about all of life. This is the, the low points and the high points. You know, James is, is intentionally using these opposites to represent everything that kind of comes in the middle, the highs, the lows, everything in between. God wants to be an active part of your life. And this is an invitation. If you're suffering, pray. If you're glad and things are going well, it's like pray as well. This time, pr- a prayer of worship, prayer of praise, you know, sing songs, etc. In other words, God is with you when you're suffering. He's with you when you're cheerful. He invites you, even commands you to invite him into the whole spectrum of your experiences because he desires whole life for you, wholehearted life for you. Jesus says, I've come so you may have life in abundance. 
And so those dots may be connected. Not that you won't suffer anymore. In fact, Jesus' way is a way of suffering. But so you may have life in the suffering and you may have life in the cheerfulness, in the joy. That's part of what he's going after in verse 13. And, and what connects the dots? Your relationship to God through Jesus Christ, whom you commune with through prayer. So that gets us going here. Prayer is a fascinating topic. Now let's keep going, verse 14 and 15. We're gonna keep on the same theme of prayer, but he's gonna take a different spin on it. Is, any, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So verse 13, James talks about two general conditions of life, suffering and gladness. Then verses 14 and 15, he moves to one very specific condition, illness. And you know, there's a lot of comments in the scholarly work about what kind of this is. And the, the word in the Greek can literally, it's just a lack of energy. It's just a weariness. So it can be certainly physical illness. It can be emotional illness. It can be sort of a, a spiritual malaise. There's all kinds of things here, but the context is probably most acutely physical illness, just sickness, disease, et cetera, which is certainly something that was rampant at that time and is still with us in force here today, 2,000 years later. Now, the command is centered still on prayer. So just like verse 13, we're still talking about prayer. But in these two verses, the focus goes from your own prayers, your own relationship with God, to the prayers of an, another group of people. He says, call for the elders of the church. Here's what James is saying. This is so interesting. God wants to do some work in you through them. He wants to work in you and he wants to use prayers of these men, of these other group of people, the, the elders in this case is who he's talking about right now, to actually do his work in you through them. Human agency, the intersection of man's work with God's work coming to play in these verses. Uh, now, in some specific cases, what I'd say this way, God wants to do healing, physical, literal healing. And he's chosen the prayers of the elders of the church to be the prayers through which he will heal. In some specific cases, it's clear in James chapter five that that's exactly what's going on here. Let's talk for a brief minute what the New Testament says about elders. Elders are given to a local church to serve that church through leadership, teaching, and prayer. That's what elders are called to do, serve. There'd be servants to serve the church through leadership, through teaching, and through prayer. In the New Testament, the role of an elder is an important part of God's provision for leading and shepherding the church. Who is the ultimate leader and shepherd of the church? Jesus Christ. But there's a human agency through which Christ, by his spirit, chooses to lead, at least in part, that's the elders of the church. Of course, leadership and, and teaching and shepherding doesn't happen just through elders, by no means. We are called one another as a body to be a part of leading, to be a part of teaching, to be a part of shepherding one another in all kinds of different ways throughout the body life of a church. But there's a clear responsibility in Scripture, in, in the New Testament, on a group that would be identified as elders, to be servants and shepherds of a congregation. And here in James 5, we see that prayer is one of the most important things that elders do. 
Again, these verses are a fascinating example of God choosing to accomplish his work through human agency. It's not the elders that are going to heal the person in this example. Look back at verse 15. It's not the elders who heal the person. In fact, the, the latter half of verse 15, the Lord will raise him up. It's God who's actually accomplishing the healing. But how does God choose to do that work? Well, earlier in the verse, that same verse is through the prayer offered in faith. Who's doing the praying? The group of elders. So do you see this amazing dynamic at play here? God's work and our work, God's plan and human obedience reminds me a little bit of two sides of a coin. Faith works. This passage about eldering is a great example of active faith, both on the part of the sick person who said, you know what, I believe God can heal me. I'm gonna take the step to reach out to this group of men that lead our church and ask them to pray for me. That's active faith on the part of the sick person. Then it's active faith on the part of the elders to say, hey, this person needs prayer. We're gonna go. Or they're gonna come to us, however you know that, that works in that particular case. If they can't come, we're gonna go. And we're gonna pray for them, expressing the two sides of the coin, works and faith, active faith. I wanna talk really briefly about the oil. I can't spend a lot of time on this. Uh, oil, and you hear it used in the New Testament, and especially in this context, it's not a magical healing potion. You know, it's not like some you know, voodoo kind of thing. Not at all. There are two possible connotations uh, where James might have been referring to the, el to the oil and how it was used by first century elders in, in the early church. One is very practical. You know, oil uh, was thought at that day and, and even to our day, it, it still does. It has some very soothing medicinal purposes, you know, and like all of you out there that are into essential oils, you're like cheering me on right now, right? So you preach it, brother. Um, so there's that. There's a sense that says, yeah, we're going to come and we're going to, like, the, the most soothing uh, medicinal that we have to offer, and, you know, they didn't have hospitals you could take somebody to. They would have had some form of doctors. But what, what James is reminding me is ultimately God who saves. And so the elders are going to come. They're going to anoint you with oil, and they're going to pray for you. So there's a practical, medicinal, you know, soothing connotation here. But there also is a spiritual representation. Oil throughout the Bible was representative of God's presence and God's choice. So, you know, back in the Old Testament, David was anointed with oil or King Saul was anointed with oil. So the spirit of God is on him. And this is God's choice to lead all throughout the Bible. You see it particularly to the Holy Spirit. We sang about the Holy Spirit earlier. Oil is closely tied to the Holy Spirit throughout scripture, the presence of the spirit. If you're wondering if our elder team still uses oil, like for some of you are about to get like weirded out because the answer is yes, we sometimes still do. Let me tell you what it looks like. Not every time we pray for someone, but sometimes when we pray for someone, particularly we'll read right from this passage, someone who's come to us asking us for prayer for, for sickness and healing. Uh, when we use that oil, we explain to them this is symbolic of God's presence. God is the one who heals. The oil doesn't heal. We, the elders, don't heal. It is God who heals. The oil reminds us of the presence of God right here among us. 
in us as, an, as a group of elders, Holy Spirit indwelling us, and in you, assuming the person we're praying for is a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is in them as well. Literally, the smell of the oil, the, 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 the feel of the oil, which one of the things I love about that is it tends to, to kind of linger. They will go home and they'll go to bed at night. They're probably still kind of smelling the oil and they'll be reminded, God's with me. Presence of the Holy Spirit is here. And we're asking God to work in this person's body to heal them because God himself asked us to ask him to heal. By the way, we want you to know that you can call on the elders of the church. We want to invite you to do that. Now, Backstory: the, the, the servant heart of these men on the elder board, they, they're not looking for stage time. In fact, sometimes they're reluctant to kind of, you know, lead from the front because they're servant, they're under shepherds. And, and that's their heart, the heart of humility, which is one of the trademarks of an elder. However, we've also realized over time, you all need to know who your elders are and you need to feel like they're an active part of shepherding this body. So over the last 12 months or so, we've, we've worked harder to make the elders more visible to you and invite you to call upon the elders for prayer. We've done this a couple of ways. One is we've had two or three elder-led prayer nights that we've shared with you and some of you have come to those and we're gonna keep doing those. Part of that reason is if you need prayer, we want you to come and be prayed for. It's also an invitation for us as a body to pray and those are all led by our elders. I also want to let you know that you can email the elders you know, this is the modern day calling, right? You can call us too if you want to call the church and we'll, we'll take that phone call, absolutely. But we want to give you an email address. And if we've got that on the slide, we'll put it up. We, we may not, and I will read it. It's elders-all at fbctn.org. FBCTN, Fellowship Bible Church, TN for Tennessee.org. Elders-all. Uh, and we'll send an email with that as well so that you have it. We want you to call on the elders and we would, it would be our privilege and joy to pray for you in obedience to this passage. Now, I'm gonna come back in a minute and talk more about some practical things with our elder team, but I first wanna cover the last verse of this text, verse 16. Here it is, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Okay, it was zoomed in on the elder team. Now it zooms out to the whole body, right? And, and we see it's not just the elders whom God works through the prayers of. Of course it's not. You know, that would, that would, that would not be true biblically at all. It's the whole body of Christ that God's gonna do his work through through prayers. So the word therefore, you know, think so what in our vernacular. What am I to do with this? Therefore, Yes, you call upon the elders of the church. That's the previous verse. But here's another, therefore, confess your sins to one another. The context for this is not to go into a confessional booth or, or to like in your small group next time, like to everybody go around and confess your sins. That's not the context of this. Here's the context. Live closely with one another. Build relationships of trust so that you can help each other Share your struggles. Yes, share your sins with those that you build close friendships with in the body of Christ so you can be prayed for specifically. How are my spiritual brothers and sisters gonna be, know how to pray for me? And how, how are they gonna pray in such a way that God, the work that God wants to do will be activated in my life if they don't know where I'm struggling? 
James is reminding us, confess your sins one to another. In other words, live with one another confessionally. And like Hebrews 10.24 encourages us, spur one, an- one another on to- toward love and good deeds. This is one of the reasons that we're re-emphasizing our fellowship groups, our small groups. You'll hear a lot more about those throughout the summer and the fall because it's our heart and our desire that everyone that calls fellowship home has a group of people that they can, over time, build relationships of trust with. And I don't want to weird you out. It's not like you're going to be like, hey, confess your sins. No, this is about giving you a context with other men and women who, who call Fellowship Bible Church their home, that you can walk with them closely enough that they can pray for you specifically specifically when you're struggling. That's the command here in the scripture. By the way, it's clear that this is a gender-inclusive context. You know, NASB says the effective prayer of a righteous man. Nearly every other translation says the effective prayer of a righteous person because it's clear from the context this is not just males. They would use the, that male pronoun to reference group of people, and, and that's very typical in the Greek. Uh, righteous in this context isn't talking about perfection, but rather someone whose conscience is clear because they've confessed their sins. That's the context. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. That is so true. I have seen that evidenced by men and women around me who love God and are living confessionally, wholehearted, with a clear conscience before God. Prayer works. God chooses to do his work through the prayers of righteous men and women. Not perfect men and women, but men and women just, li- just living open-handed before God, living confessionally. Isn't this an amazing truth? Your prayers are powerful because somehow and mysteriously in, in the God's design, our prayers activate God's work in the world. And I know there's a lot of wonder and mystery in that and I can't solve all the, the riddle. Active faith is so amazing.